This is episode 203 of That Shakespeare Life. New here at That Shakespeare Life, you can now get insider access to our show with special history bonuses not available anywhere else, including video versions of our podcast and behind the scenes looks at the latest history tidbits I uncover while we're putting together the episodes of our show. If you love the history we share with you here each week, then consider supporting our work by becoming a patron. Learn more at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Murat Uj. Assistant Professor Doctor at the Department of Western Languages and Literatures at Munzer University, Turkey, and author of chapters and articles on early modern English drama. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this, That Shakespeare Life, with my friend Cassidy Cash. Some of the captains allowed sailors to share their rations and hammocks with their wives, who accompanied their husbands throughout long voyages. And this, of course, means that they had to have have some protocols for those women who got pregnant on ships. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In Shakespeare's Pericles, the character Thasia gives birth on a ship at sea and dying in childbirth is thrown overboard in her coffin by Pericles. There's a great deal to unpack in the story about this moment, but seeing it happen in the play leads me to wonder where were women really traveling on board ships in the 16th century? I mean, sailing and exploration was typically a male profession. And even when the pilgrims sailed to the new world on the Mayflower, the Mayflower was unique in allowing both women and children aboard ship. Remember, that's about 1620. To help us understand what the place of women on board ships was like in the 16th century, including whether or not there were standards of prenatal care and how births like Thasia's might have been handled in the real 16th century world in which Shakespeare was living, is our guest, Kazia Berzinska. Kazia Berzinska is a an assistant professor at the Faculty of English AMU in Poznan, Poland. Her research interests include pregnancy and embodiment in English early modern drama, eco-feminist, and vegan studies. She is a lead investigator in an ongoing research project called Sir, She Came in Great with Child and Longing, Phenomenology of Pregnancy in English Early Modern Drama, funded by the National Science Center in Poland. Her monograph titled Pregnant Bodies from Shakespeare to Ford is forthcoming in the Rutledge Studies in Literature and Health Humanities series. She is is vegan and a passionate advocate for animal liberation. Find links to Casio's work in the show notes for today's episode, as well as her contact information on Twitter so you can follow the rest of her research. Hello, Kasha. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hello. I am wondering about 16th century women being on board ships in the first place. This definitely seems like a situation that you wouldn't expect women to be in. Was it what were they doing there? Why are they in a situation to have birth at sea? Well, I would say that there were women who were on ships voluntarily and those who were the not voluntarily. But I also believe that in order to briefly but 
comprehensively answer this question, we should broaden it a little bit and ask why women decided to travel long distance in the first place. Because whenever they did, they moved beyond accepted modes of feminine conduct. Because if you look at conduct literature of the period, it generally prohibits women from traveling. So, for instance, in the Traveller of Jerome Turler, one reads that the wandering of women cannot want suspicion, and it always means some dishonesty. And Turler uh, speaks of early modern dramatists who brought traveling women to the stage, but at the same time, in real life, women were discouraged from traveling. So a woman who took it upon herself to travel, in a way, invited trouble, and she was breaking the social rules and earned a label of of being dishonest or, or even unchaste. Women were in general confined to the domestic sphere, so traveling was deemed dangerous. This can be glimpsed in the theme of a cross-dressed heroine in romantic comedies. So, for instance, Rosalind in As You Like It cross-dresses for safety reasons. So traveling was a transgressive act, and it certainly blurred these very sharp gender roles in the period. Traveling while pregnant was a doubly transgressive act in the period because pregnancy was seen as an essentially aberrant condition bordering on disease and requiring uh, utmost vigilance and care for one's health. So women were not only discarded from, from traveling, but also from singing, dancing, excessive labor. So it was even believed that sneezing or diarrhea could cause a miscarriage. So traveling aboard a ship or in any other means of transportation was definitely something that was seen as transgressive, dangerous, or even irresponsible. Women were discouraged from traveling, and this explains very few records of women, including pregnant women aboard ships in Shakespeare's time. But of course, pregnant women traveled, but they constitute a sort of invisible presence. So some women traveled while they were pregnant, And early modern drama gives us a couple of examples of of traveling pregnant women. And Thaisa's labor aboard a ship is the most famous example of a pregnant woman aboard a ship. But we do have other examples of fictional pregnant women traveling long distances. For for example, we have Helena in All's Well That Ends Well. Uh, She's already pregnant when she travels all over France to, to find Bertram. Uh, We also have a marginal character of a cross-dressed page in Middleton's uh, More Decembers Besides Women, who leaves her home in Mantua and travels to Rome in order to find a a man who got her pregnant in the first place. So these fictional examples uh, present travel as enforced by the condition of pregnancy. So these women travel because they need to find and discipline unruly partners and uh, or, or unruly husbands. The experience of Taisa is something that drives her, the, the, this experience of the sea tempest is something that drives her into premature labor and is eventually the cause of her supposed death. So I would say that Shakespeare and Wilkins, the, the co-author of the play, seem to be rather conservative. But of course, they follow the, the sources. In the Latin version of the story of Apollonius, Apollonius's wife mentions her imminent confinement, but she does not want to be parted with her husband. Uh, so she insists on taking the voyage with him. And in Pericles, Tysa does the same, though her agency is sort of undercut by Gower, who narrates the story for the audience. On the one hand, I would say that her decision to travel in her condition is presented as irresponsible because, in a way, 
Taisa is punished with death in childbirth. But then on the other hand, she may also be read as a, as a very obedient wife who just follows her husband. And of course, in the period, a woman's place was beside her husband. Uh, and Taisa and Pericles are, after all, traveling home. Would the pregnant woman have taken any childbirth preparation items or prenatal care items with her when she's getting on board the ship? I know you mentioned that the decision to travel at all was considered irresponsible, but surely pregnant women had some sense of how to take care of themselves while they were pregnant. I think we can safely assume that those women who boarded the ships involuntarily or without knowing that they were pregnant did not have access to any medication. However, those who have boarded ships, knowing that labor would take place on the ship, would probably turn to religion rather than medicine. Because at the time, there was little that early modern medicine could do to alleviate extreme labor pain. And also, labor pain was seen in the period as the so-called Eve's curse. So women were supposed to suffer labor pain as punishment for the original sin. And the Bible is the ultimate authority here. And many women saw themselves as these providential vessels where God created and sustained life. And in Pericles, you sort of have an actual vessel being tossed to and fro amidst a wild tempest. I have not come across any firsthand testimonies, testimonies of women giving birth on ships. But there are some scant female authored, authored testimonials of aristocratic women who kept diaries for spiritual reasons. And they very often presented labor as a sort of protracted, even heroic test of fame, of faith. So pain was supposed to be born with meekness and patience. And of course, at the time, midwifery books suggested some ways of alleviating the pain. So for example, a midwife could rub a woman's back with with some herbal ointment. But at the same time, it's highly unlikely that women had the support of midwives at the time on ships. So I think that they did not really resort to any medical knowledge. Rather, they turned to religion and to, to God, because pain was part of the marriage deal and an inherent part of this sort of rite of passage to motherhood. I think it's a question of speculation whether women on board of ships had access to any relief. But in Pericles, Tysa is accompanied by a nurse. So we might also assume that since Tysa boarded the ship already pregnant and she was accompanied by a professional, she had some herbal medication at her disposal. You mentioned that Thasia had a nurse, but also that a midwife being on board ship was probably rare. Was there a midwife or a doctor that operated on on board as part of a ship's crew? I think about the situation of where, you know, a captain of a ship can marry someone, for example. So this position on board ship has kind of a dual function. Were there other members of a ship's crew that were capable of functioning as a medical officer or a doctor in an emergency? The presence of women on ships was not acknowledged as such. And in a way, women did not officially exist aboard these uh, ships. And this is true for the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, because women were not included in the master books. So 
if they were officially not there, there was probably no provision of a midwife in case of a birth at sea, unless other uh, women on board had some experience in midwifery. And at the time, many women uh, in the age of home births had uh, such experience. But many laboring women were at the mercy of, of more or less competent or incompetent attendants. And some of them were just dependent on the powers of nature. So, for instance, uh, merchant ships did not really have any professionally trained medical personnel, except for a barber or a surgeon. And a barber or a surgeon was not a medical doctor. He, because that was uh, a man uh, who was, was capable of, of dressing wounds or, or tending to very mild injuries or infection. A barber or a surgeon did not have a medical degree. Uh, later on, naval Royal Navy ships were provided with services of naval surgeons. But again, they were not doctors. Uh, but at the same time, what, what I think uh, important is the fact that pregnancy and birth in the period were a province of women. So even physicians, male physicians, trained doctors could actually be less capable of delivering a child than midwives with years of experience. So it was not until the rise of the so-called man midwives later in the 17th century and the birth of gynecology in the 18th century that women were pushed out of the birthing chambers and pregnancy and labor became sub a subject of more intensified medicalization. But before that, women were supported by other women. And if there were other women um, on ships, then they could serve as, as midwives to the laboring women. But very often, birth on a ship meant that a woman was at the mercy of incompetent medical practitioners or was left uh, all alone. Now, you mentioned that the arrival of gynecology in the 18th century relocated where birthing occurred, specifically moving women out of the bedchamber. Now, I wonder what that means about being on board a ship to give birth. Was there a specific location on board a ship that where childbirth would take place? Well, that is an excellent question. I'd say it's a million dollar question because 17th century ships were not really equipped with any facilities or any suitable space that would allow for childbirth to take place in conditions similar to those on land. Because in the period, women gave birth in, as I said earlier, specially designed, consecrated spaces known as birthing chambers. And these were usually regular rooms transformed into birth chambers by hanging thick curtains, blocking sunlight. And these rooms were very often lit with candlelight. And it's very difficult to recreate such conditions uh, aboard a ship. Men, even from the closest family, were barred entrance. And again, that is something that is not uh, possible on a uh, ship. As I said, recreating such conditions is, is not possible because at the time, sailors slept in very cramped conditions on straw-filled mattresses on hard decks because hammocks were not uh, introduced until around 1596. Uh, these mattresses were very often wet and damp. And if you, for instance, look at the structure of Drake's ship, uh, you can see that the only person on board who had the luxury of having a bed and a private cabin was the captain himself. So there was actually no uh, space where a laboring woman had could have some privacy. So the main deck 
led up to the hold where food and water supplies were held for instance, but this was the place that was heavily guarded because these supplies were rationed. If you've seen any replicas of the Golden Hind, for instance, in London, you realize that these ships were also very small. And I think that when we speak of pregnant women who boarded ships, we should definitely mention Maria, uh, an African woman who traveled on the Golden Hind during Francis Drake's uh, circumnavigation of the globe. Maria would have been erased from history if it wasn't for a very brief mention of her in uh, one of the British Library manuscripts. In this anonymous sailor's account, we uh, find a reference to to, um, a, a wench called Maria. In the light of this, for instance, we may speculate that Drake and his crew decided it was actually better to leave pregnant Maria, so this woman who traveled with them, who was in an advanced pregnancy, to leave her on on a desert island where she could give birth in safer conditions than do it on the ship. We know that the Mayflower uh, was used to transport both men and women, so we could assume that it was better equipped to serve pregnant women, but that was unfortunately not the case. On the Mayflower, each passenger had a total area uh, the size of a single mattress for their entire daily uh, life. There, the passengers lived in a space called the between deck. So labor that took place on the Mayflower Mayflower also took place in in this space called the between deck, uh, which had a height of around 152 centimeters. And we also know that the passengers uh, then became extremely seasick, seasick in these cramped conditions. So again, we may speculate where and how the birthing ritual was observed by, but we can possibly imagine women on the Mayflower organizing some limited space in between the deck that could serve as a birthing space. And on the Mayflower, women were maybe a little bit more fortunate because they could afford exclusively female company. And on the Golden Golden Hind, we know that Maria was the only woman on board. So, uh, you know, on on the Mayflower, there were other women who could serve as birth attendants. And some of them may have had some midwife, uh, midwifing experience as birth attendants, but definitely no privacy and labor took place in, uh, in this space called the between deck. You mentioned the Mayflower. Now, the Mayflower set sail for New England in 1620, and three of the 102 passengers were pregnant women. Do we have any surviving records that tell us what these women experience was like? Did any of those women actually give birth during the voyage over to New England? Yes. So we know that three women were pregnant. Elizabeth Hopkins and Susanna White uh, were each in their seventh month of pregnancy, while Mary Norris uh, Alton was in her second or third month. And these pregnancies must have been very difficult because the Mayflower ran into very fierce storms. And those storms lasted most of the um, nine and a half weeks of of the the journey. And passengers were confined to these low spaces between decks and the ship, while the ship was tossed to and fro in these raging storms. But Elizabeth Hopkins gave birth to a baby boy named Oceanus. Uh, He was named after his birthplace, and she gave birth while the ship was still at sea. And she actually gave birth during the raging storms that 
would not stop. There's no exact date for the birth, but we know that it must have been somewhere sometime late in the in the voyage. As for the other women, they gave birth when the ship was already when the ship already re- reached land, but they still gave birth on the on the ship. So Susanna uh, White gave birth when, when they reached Massachusetts, and she uh, named her son Peregrine to sort of celebrate their pilgrimage. And he lived into his 80s, but unfortunately, Oceanus Hopkins died uh, during the Pilgrim's first winter. Mary Norris Alton uh, died about a month after giving birth to a stillborn son. So that's the extent of what we know about these courageous women. So what happens to the baby after it's born on board ship? I mean, children need a lot of, especially newborns, they need specific care. Were there higher than normal mortality rates for babies that were born at sea versus on land? Acknowledging that the infant mortality rate was high during this time period in general, but do we have a comparison for how the care differed on board ship than on land? Mm Mm-hmm. In normal circumstances, babies were taken by the birth attendants to be swaddled and laid next to the uh, mothers. And normally for aristocratic women, a nurse would be uh, hired. Something of the kind was not possible on a uh, ship. I haven't found any statistic, statistical data uh, referring to infant mortality uh, aboard ships because this is a, a phenomenon that has not been really recorded well. But given the fact that ships were famous for lack of sanitation, hygiene, uh, we might safely assume that the mortality rate of uh, infants was higher. An estimated infant mortality in pre-industrial populations generally varied. But it could be approximately up to approximately 200 deaths per 1,000 live births. So that's about 27% of children. So 27% of children died before the age of one year. In urban spaces, even more children died. So given the fact that infant survivability uh, depends very largely on the physical environment into which the child is born, and the level of sanitation and availability of healthcare facilities, we can safely assume that children were definitely less uh, safe uh, aboard ships than in other environments. Now, I think of of ships, particularly naval ships, like you mentioned, um, Sir Francis Drake and the Golden Hind, as being very organized places that have protocols in place for a whole lot of situations that may or may not be common. And I know that women giving birth on board a ship was not a situation sailors would want to have happen. But it seems with the story of Maria that you mentioned earlier, as well as the women on the Mayflower, this situation of a woman giving birth on ship would not have been wholly unheard of for sailors. So I wonder if there was a protocol set in place for if you're on a ship and you're a sailor and a woman is giving birth, here's how we handle that. And I I think specifically of the origin of the phrase son of a gun comes from, you know, a woman giving birth on ship. Now that phrase postdates Shakespeare, I believe, but Mm -hmm. was there a particular protocol? Does this, does origins of phrases like this suggest that sailors did have some idea of of how to handle it if they were there when this occurred? Mm -hmm. 
Yes, we definitely can learn of certain unconventional protocols for the wives of the sailors in the Royal Navy. Not only did captains allow for sex workers to live on ships whenever the ships were in harbors, but also some of the captains allowed sailors to share their rations and hammocks with their wives who accompanied their husbands throughout long voyages. And this, of course, means that they had to have, have some protocols for those women who got pregnant on ships, and some of them gave birth uh, on board. All in all, childbirth was not such an unusual occur- occurrence at sea, but it must have been very difficult. So most often, births took place on one of the tables between two guns on the lower deck, uh, with only some canvas draped across to provide some privacy. And from this situation comes this phrase, son of a gun, which is, of course, a euphemism for, a, for, for something worse. But this term sort of gives us insight into the situation itself. So the child was born literally in between two guns. Also, because, uh, because it's, a, it's an insult, we also assume that it comes from the fact that it was assumed that uh, a child that was born between two guns on a on a lower deck must have been illegitimate, which of course served as an insult to 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 a person. But this was actually not the case in many uh, situations because wives also accompanied uh, mariners uh, on these voyages. Now, after Thaja dies in Shakespeare's Pericles, she's tossed overboard in a coffin. And that detail surprises me because I would have expected a burial at sea to be just tossing the body into the ocean with very little fanfare, due mostly to what I assumed would be the impracticality of doing anything more elaborate in a shipboard environment. But in this scene, is Shakespeare taking creative license with her story or is her being placed in a coffin and tossed overboard a similar experience to what would have happened on board a real ship if a woman died in childbirth while in the middle of the ocean? This is a very interesting question. Death on board in the age of sail was also a very frequent occurrence. And in Pericles, we learn that the mariners insist that Tice's body needs to be thrown overboard uh, to stop the violent storm. And this is, of course, connected to this uh, superstition that, that that a dead body on board is something that causes violent uh, storms. So in a way, Shakespeare makes his characters voice this superstitious view through the mouths of these mariners. Pericles himself, himself berates them for this superstition, but he eventually yields to their demand. What I, I think is interesting is that the tempest in Pericles actually starts before Tysa starts giving birth. And this it is the tempest that causes premature labor rather than the other way around. But in fact, I think that her body is not just unceremoniously tossed into the water, water, although you have this feeling of haste and chaos because we're in the midst of this raging uh, tempest. But the text gives us in, insight into very meticulous preparation of the body for the sea burial because we learn of this chest uh, that is corked and bitumed ready. And the coffin is prepared in such a way that water cannot easily enter the insides. And this, of course, makes sense because we later learn that she is not really dead. So Pericles makes an effort to protect her body from external destructive influence of the sea. And I think that Tyson's body is given more than what ordinary sailors dying on board were afforded. 
dead bodies on ships were usually shrouded in cloth, whereas she's put in a in, in this casket with uh, with spices and with jewels. She is provided with a sort of richer send-off. We have no indication of any processions of services commemorating her death, and this is something that usually happened on ships. Maybe this is because she is a woman, not a sailor. Maybe this is due to the haste that is caused by the storm. So I would say that there is a mix of both, right? So you do get a little bit of what could actually happen on a real ship and a bit of creative license on the part of the author. One particular story of a woman who gave birth on a ship I feel like we should cover is the story of Grace O'Malley. Now, Grace O'Malley was a pirate, but the story about her is that she supposedly gave birth about an hour before her ship was attacked, and she came up from below deck where she had just given birth and led her crew, not just assisted, but led her crew to fight against the attackers um, successfully, I might add. Kasha, is there any veracity to Grace's story? Is this what actually occurred? I think that Grace O'Malley's life story is a testament to the fact that courageous women can do whatever they like, even in stifling patriarchal realities. And given the incredible acts of bravery that Grace O'Malley performed in her life, uh, this story is just one of many incredible moments in her life. But you do actually have some historical material that lends credence to this story. So we learn most of the facts about Grace O'Malley from English state papers. As for the, this birth at sea, Theobald, the son of Grace and Richard, was born in 1567, and he was known as Tibbot, uh, Tibbot Nelon, uh, which means uh, Toby of the ships. And um, this is because it was believed that he, he was born on his mother's ship. We know from Thomas Burke's Hibernia Dominicana, uh, a history, Irish history, that this is the source of his nickname. So there's one historical source, definitely. Uh, and Anne Chambers, Grace biographer, also uh, believes that this story is true because attacks by pirates, Algerian pirates at the time, were extensively uh, recorded. And uh, Chambers also relies on the ordinance survey uh, letters, according to uh, which Grace called her men into action, uh, while at the same time she emptied a musket at the Algerians crying, take this from unconsecrated hands. Although this story is part of uh, folklore and Irish song, there are actually documents that also reference this story. What I find particularly interesting is the fact that uh, Grace refers to unconsecrated hands, which is this, this uh, beautiful reference to the churching of women. So this custom in Catholic uh, church that deemed women after childbirth unfit to participate in church ceremonies until they underwent a cleansing ceremony. But interestingly, churching was also practiced in Protestant England after Reformation, though it was transformed into a Thanksgiving ceremony for, for a safe delivery. So, you know, concluding Grace's amazing story, I would just like to add that modern science also demonstrates that women's bodies are aided in labor by potent hormones. Uh, and these hormones help, help women to keep their strength up. 
So women's bodies are uh, capable of credible, incredible feats of physical endurance in the face of threat. I believe that it's not that surprising that Grace O'Malley managed to give birth and then lead a defensive mission that saved her ship. And this way she protected her infant son. So this story sounds hard to believe, but it's actually uh, incredible what our bodies can do when we are faced with immediate threats. I know we would love to explore this topic further. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Yes, there are amazing uh, books out there. So I would definitely recommend this collection of essays edited by Patricia Akami and Bernadette Andrea, Travel and Travail, Early Modern Women, English Drama and the Wider World. Uh, This is an excellent collection that addresses various gaps and inconsistencies regarding the status of women traveling in the period, uh, especially in relation to early modern drama. If you're interested in the pirate queen, Grace O'Malley, I would recommend a classic biography uh, by Anne Chambers, uh, Grace O'Malley, the biography of Ireland's pirate queen. If you're interested in um, the women of the Mayflower, there's a book by Kate Caffrey called Simply the Mayflower. And for a very concise introduction to women's relationship to the sea, I would also recommend a book by Suzanne J. Stark, which is called Female Tars, Women Aboard Ship in the Age of Sail. And this is, of course, a book that focuses mostly on post-Shakespearean times, but the author's Uh, traces the origin of the relationship of women and the sea. And she actually persuasively argues that women accompanied men on ships already in the Middle Ages, uh, though their presence is uh, often scantily documented or they have been somehow erased due to historical anti-female bias. Thank you for these resources. We will link to all of these as well as Takasha's work in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you go there to find links to all of those. Now, Kasha, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. I think I would opt for nonfiction a book that has recently given me a lot of peace and joy in these turbulent times is Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet by Thich Nhat Hanh, a Vietnamese Zen master and Buddhist teacher. It's a very concise outline of his teachings that grow out of the Diamond Sutra. And I think it's a great text that gives us a lot of hope and this sort of meaningful agency in the face of the climate change uh, But what I like about this book is that the author clearly led by example. Um, So there's a lot of compassion and and loving kindness that that anyone can benefit uh, from, whether they're on an island or, or, you know, in a bustling city. I think it's always important when on a deserted island to choose a book that brings you hope and that you enjoy. So I think you did both of those things. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? I recently finished my book, Pregnant Bodies from Shakespeare to Ford. Congratulations. Thank you very much, uh, which is a result of a four-year-long project financed by the National Science Center in Poland. And I'll be involved in promotional work soon. But the book is already available for pre-order. So you can go to Routledge page and order it today. 
Uh, so, of course, I'm very excited about the re release of the monograph. But what I would like to do now is write up my findings about pregnancy and ships and publish a paper on that. Uh, and I think that there's still so much that can be and should be said about pregnant characters in drama or, or in literature more generally, because pregnancy is a fundamental experience on which our survival and continuity depend, but it has only recently been included in mainstream humanities. And it's not a topic only for doctors or scientists, but also philosophers and literary scholars. So what I also wish to do next is write more about the commodification of reproductive bodies, both human and non-human, because only when you actually see the sort of intersecting, intersecting nature of oppressive systems can you do something to dismantle various biases like sexism, but also speciesism? So what I would like to do is write more about the reproductive bodies of our fellow mammals who are exploited in industrial farming. And I think it, it's high time that we see that the aims of the, you know, the feminist project and the vegan project are synonymous to see that. So this is something that I'm committed to and very excited about. Well, I invite you to visit the show notes for today's episode where you can see links to all of Kasha's work. If you are excited about these things just as much as she is, you will love following all of the work that she has there. So make sure you stop by the show notes to see those. Kasha, thank you so much for being here this week and sharing with us the history of these very brave and courageous women who gave birth at sea during Shakespeare's lifetime. This has really been a fascinating conversation and I thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Remember that the show notes is the place to get more history. If you like what you're learning about today, there's bonus content, including links to portraits and woodcuts of some of the characters we learn about in today's episode, along with more information on Casio's works and links to the recommended resources she suggests for you today. Visit CassidyCash.com slash episode 203 to find all the bonus content we have available for you there. Just like William Shakespeare himself, our show is powered by the support of listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. Your support helps us connect with the guests we bring on here each week to bring you the best of Shakespeare history right to your headphones every Monday. To say thank you for supporting our work, patrons get exclusive access to video versions of our show, bonus documentary films, three-minute animated versions of Shakespeare's plays, and more bonus content. Plus, as a patron, you can talk with me directly about the show. You can send me a message and Tell me what you think about our current guests, as well as make suggestions for what you'd like to see covered on a future episode. You can get all of these benefits and make a real difference in the life of our show for just $5 a month at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. I hope you'll join us. That website is patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. And the link for that is also available in the show notes. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.